Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hello there, folks out in interwebs land. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 96, which means we will end this week with kind of a, a landmark episode, episode 100, 100 episodes of Miyagi Mornings. And um, on that note, it's a good time for a pause. Don't worry, Miyagi Mornings isn't going away. Uh, as previously announced, the recap podcast is actually going to become one of my weekly podcasts and give me a little more time in my life. Uh, to do things that I want to do and have a little bit better lifestyle design for myself. It'll also give me more time to work on things on property and actually have more stuff to teach and talk about. Anyway, um, but I am going to take a pause. Next week, I am going away. Yep, I'm going to go to Florida, and I'm going to fish and hang out with my wife. Uh, and for a part of the time, I'm going to hang out with my son, my grandchildren, and my daughter-in-law. I'm going to be on the beach. I ain't going to do jack diddly shit, okay? Just to be blunt... And that means next week I am going to have to be doing a lot of work pre-Exodus uh, to put up rewind shows and, 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 and extra shows and stuff so that you guys have podcasts every day that I'm gone. And something's got to give, and it's going to be Miyagi Mornings. So Miyagi Mornings is going to go away for about two and a half, two weeks, something like that. And then uh, we will be back and resume at episode 101. So what are we going to talk about today? Bullshit excuses. That's what we're going to talk about today. And specific to kind of the prepper alternative spaces, right? Like, I've been doing this now. It amazes me. People, you know, they bring things to you like, I just found out about it. Like, we, we've been dealing with and hearing these things forever, forever. And I've been dealing with excuse making for as long as I've been doing this. Here's some actual excuses that I've heard people make um, in regards to the things that we recommend people do and the way that we recommend people build resiliency into their life and non-brittleness into their life. Uh, I'm not going to have a garden because when the shit hits the fan, they, whoever the hell they are, will steal my tomatoes and, and various versions thereof. Basically, it's not worth having a garden, man, because, you know, the shit's going to hit the fan and somebody's just going to steal it. All right, you're only planning for failure and a specific type of failure, so you broke rule number one of survivalism. You lose. All right, so we can keep going. Um... I'm not going to get into cryptocurrency because they're going to shut down the Internet. You know what, friends and neighbors, if they shut down the Internet, you have a bigger effing problem than you do with your Bitcoin or your, your pirate chain or your Monero or whatever currency that you're holding. They also don't do, they don't do things that hurt them. And, uh, they're, no, they're not going to shut the Internet down. Um, I've also heard I'm not going to build a particular thing because that's electronic. You know what's going to happen? There's going to be an EMP one day. You just watch, and it's going to shut that thing down. That thing you just built, I've had just, just recently, that thing you just built, huh, will it survive an EMP or will it survive a CME? I don't give a shit. I'm going to sit around on my, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to sit around worrying about black swans and whatever thing that you can come up with, like Stephen King, that was under your bed when you were a kid to be afraid of. And I'll get to why people do this in just a second. Um, here's another one. 
I'm not going to invest in stocks or have a 401k or an IRA or anything like that because the market's just going to go broke. Okay, fine. I mean, I don't think all of your investing should go into stocks, right? Um, but come on. The, 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 we have a functioning economy, and if you know what you're doing, that should be one piece of your investment strategy, especially you know publicly invested money that you know they can see. Uh, and using tax-deferred accounts and things like that, or tax-exempt accounts, etc. Man, come on. You're just ignoring that is, is pathetic. Um, how about this? I'm not going to start a business because they, whoever, again, whoever they are, won't let me. The hell are you talking about? People start businesses every day. Or, well, they're just going to tax my business, so why would, I, why would I start a business? Dude, you start a business so you can pay less taxes. What these all are, is a combination of ignorance and what I call, I don't want us, so black swan theory. A black swan is like this thing that can't be foreseen, that comes out of nowhere and destroys a thing that otherwise seemed to be good, right? So what people do is they invent these black swans. Most of their black swans are akin to like an, an autistic crow. I mean, yeah, not... <laughs> Or like a duck with mud on it or something, man, you know? Like, it, it's just anything they can reach out and grab is an excuse not to do things. Here's another example. Like, you tell people about cryptocurrency, and they're like, well, I just believe in silver and gold, man. I How much silver and gold do you have? And it ends up they don't have any of that either. So they're, they're, they're creating a replacement. Well, what's much better is to, to invest in silver. Do you have any silver? They have like five bucks in silver. Or, no, nah, man, land is the thing. Do you own any land? They don't. I don't have any money. They're dead-ass broke. And instead of saying, I don't have any money to invest in cryptocurrency, and it's risky, and since I have very little money, I don't want to invest in it. And being honest, they come up with some bullshit, misdirected excuse. Peter Schiff said, Peter Schiff doesn't know Schiff, all right, about cryptocurrency. So don't listen to him about cryptocurrency. You want to listen to somebody about gold and silver, listen to somebody that knows gold and silver, and, and Peter Schiff does. But that's where you stop taking advice. This is what you have to do with all experts. When you they reach a place that they don't know about, stop listening to them and start thinking for your damn self. You know, here's another perfect example. Let's see, people are going to get all butthurt here because I'm not going to say everything wonderful about the guy. But there's, I love the guy personally, and that's Dave Ramsey. If you want advice on how to get rid of debt, you listen to Dave Ramsey. If you want advice on the way that you can use leveraged debt within real estate to make yourself wealthy, do not listen to Dave Ramsey. He doesn't know the square root of F all what he's talking about. If you want to actually diversify your investments, don't listen to Dave Ramsey because I'm sorry, having 100% of your money denominated in dollars in the stock market through mutual funds does not make diversity. It's that, that is, that is not diversified. That's a single vehicle of investment, right? Denominated dollar equities. That is not diversity. I don't care if some small cap, some's mid cap, some's blue chip, some's dividends. It's not diversity. It's a single entity. Now, you have diversity within your niche, fine. But that should not be where everything is. And you don't listen to people that tell you things like that. Don't listen to the guy when he tells you something like, well, uh, you know, you shouldn't refinance debt to a lower interest rate. I'm sorry. Are you stupid? I'm sorry, Dave. Are you stupid? Of course you do. Of course you do. Now, what he's saying is it's more important that you pay the debt down than get a lower interest rate. I agree. I also don't hate money. But see, everybody wants to come up with some reason, to, and this is where I'm coming from with this, to justify their position. So let's go back to something a little more simple. 
I don't want a garden because the people will steal my tomatoes when the shit hits the fan. What that person's really saying is, you know what, I don't want to do the work of digging up the ground and running a garden. I don't think it's worth it. But they can't say that. They want to come up with some nonsensical excuse to defend the indefensible, right? Because it is a completely legitimate thing, in my opinion, for you to say, I, I ain't got no time for gardening. I don't have time, and I don't want to. Okay. Especially if I go to your house, and your house is nothing but a little mowed piece of grass, right? If you have a whole bunch of bushes and shrubs and trees that don't produce anything, <laughs> it's not. It's not legitimate, because those could be berry bushes, those could be fruit trees, they could be uh, fruit-producing vines, they could be herbs. Like If you have any kind of landscaping at all, it could be edible. It doesn't necessarily have to be a garden. right? So then it, then it becomes an excuse. But a person who says, I don't want to, I don't have the time, I don't have the money, f fine, fine. But people have this need to defend things, and this is where it goes really south. Once they entrench themselves... They refuse to take in the new information. We basically create the idiocracy that the movie was about. That's how we really get there, is people tunneling themselves down, doubling down on top of doubling down on top of doubling down on a position to the point where nothing will convince them otherwise. Like whatever version of God they had could descend from the heavens and say, my son or my daughter, I'm sorry, but you are incorrect. You need to evaluate this differently because it's important for your life. I got I'm telling it to you. And they'd be like, nah, nah. God's fake. Well, it's, but that was your God that you believed in. Yeah, but yeah, no, no, they're going to take my tomatoes. This is basically another version of the toolbox fallacy. Instead of, I need this thing before I can do this thing, it's, I don't want to do this thing, so here's my thing that prevents me from doing it, when they're never going to do it anyway. You could, the people that say, like, I'm not going to start a business because they won't let me. I always ask them, what business do you want to start? Either they don't know, or whatever they say, I'm like, you can do that, do that shit right now. Or they're going to tax me, and like, What do I teach you guys? 95% of the tax code is how not to do what the other 5% says. And you, the way you get that done, mostly, not all, but mostly is through business ownership. A business owner is going to pay less taxes per dollar that goes through their hands to provide from them than an employee, period. End of story. All the time. Every time. Unless they are smart enough to run a business but too stupid to understand what a good CPA is. Right? These are all things that we use to make excuses for our laziness, our unwillingness to educate ourselves, right? And for missing opportunities. That's another big one. So there's people now that no matter what you tell them about cryptocurrency, the real reason they're going to come up with some bullshit as to why they don't want to get involved is what? Because they were told about it 10 years ago, didn't do it, have done the math, and realized how much... That obstinance has cost them, and therefore they must justify it. Otherwise, hey, I actually made a mistake. And people don't like making mistakes. People don't like admitting mistakes. How do you cure this? You assume that anything you think you know may be wrong. And then you seek to either confirm it or disprove it for yourself. Instead of using it as a shield, because that's what people are doing. It's basically an ignorance shield. Like... I don't want to know, blah, 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 put their fingers in their ears and make freaking childish noises is what they're doing. You know, they'll just shut off the Internet. Do you even understand what that means? Do you even understand how that works? They'll make the Internet illegal. That's another one I've heard. Are, are you smoking crack? Really? Just say you don't want to do it. Just say I don't have time to learn about it. Just say I don't want to. Don't make up bullshit. You know the problem with making up bullshit like that? The real problem, friends and neighbors? You know what it is, don't you? Some of you have just already snapped right to what he's going to say, right? Yeah. 
you start to believe your own bullshit. With that, I'll wrap up today. Don't believe your own bullshit. Always accept that you could be wrong about a thing. I know that a lot of times when I talk to you guys, you think, well, he doesn't mean that because he doesn't. Yes, I do. Just because I speak with confidence and convictions about the things that I've learned about doesn't mean I always don't stay open to the option that maybe I got this one wrong. But what it takes is logic, facts, and reasons, not bullshit black swans that you pull out of your ass. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hey, guys and gals out in interwebs land. Welcome to another episode of Miyagi Mornings. I believe this is a Tuesday. I don't know, man. My, my life has been scrambled lately. I'm so glad I'll be going on vacation at the end of next week. Uh, as previously announced, this will be the last week of Miyagi Mornings for a couple weeks as I go recharge the batteries. Uh, next week leading up to my departure, I want to get some rewinds and things like that done so there's podcasts every day. For those that uh, watch me on YouTube and don't listen to my podcast, this is not my podcast. This is just morning videos that I do. I do a podcast of about an hour to an hour and a half a day almost every day of the week. Uh, got almost 3,000 episodes up now, going back 13 years. So if you want to check me out, check me out there. All right, so today I have for you what might be like a freaking crazy lunatic idea that no one should ever do, ever. Or it might be a genius idea or somewhere in between. And it's not a complete idea. So I'm not concerned with, but here's a problem, right? Like, I think that when you start talking about doing a project like I'm talking about here, you have developers working together, and then they figure out problems as they go. And to be very clear, I don't want to be in charge of this. I certainly don't have the technical know-how how to do this, and I damn sure don't have the time to learn it, nor the time to do it. So this is just like floating an idea in the crypto space out into the universe, and it's going to be odd coming from me. Because I'm the one, I'm the one that said so many times, so many times, over and over and over again, we don't need another cryptocurrency. We don't need another cryptocurrency, right? And and I, I always temper that with, but maybe we do, right? Like, but like it it bugs me that every time there's a project, we have to put a token in it or a coin in it, so that basically the developers of the project can print money. That's not what this is. And again, this might sound insane, but let's let's go back a little bit and kind of what my vision and dream for society is. With cryptocurrency, with the ability to do business with each other, to know each other, um, and to conduct business privately, and to be able to communicate privately, and to be able to put whatever the hell you want online and not have somebody say that has to be taken down. So what I'm seeing in my mind of a virtual nation would be a social media site or sites built on blockchain that would look and work a lot like Facebook without Zuckerberg in charge of it, without his fact-checking bullshit. To me, I believe the best fact-checking is the market itself. Like, people that are Looney Tunes that are going to believe bullshit, they're going to believe it no matter what anybody says, and people that won't believe the truth are not going to believe it no matter what anybody says. So let people have open, vigorous discourse about like that. Likewise, it would be great if people could be like, I have this thing for sale, whether it's a electronic product, a physical product, an NFT, I don't care what it is. Like If people want to do business, it's between those two people and nobody else. And so I've always wanted kind of this social media site. I don't even know if that's the right word for it anymore. But something that somebody could use that would be like, I don't care about any of this shit. I just don't want to see censorship. And it could also be the, the thing that like the total crypto geek could use equally. To like, I want to be able to do business with these 25 people around the world and stay in touch with them and have my own private group and not be bothered. And to me, we need a privacy coin for that. 
And I think the two best out there right now are Monero, which is great and going to get better, and Pirate, which is the best privacy coin uh, that there is, but has some things that still need to be developed with, like wallet technology and all to make things be a little more smooth. So either one of these could be used for what I'm about to say, or maybe something else. I don't know. So, But here's what I'm thinking. It doesn't make sense if all you want to create is a derivative of something, and you need a technology that already exists to completely rebuild the technology that's going to handle the derivative. And derivative is a bad word in a lot of people's minds because of what's been done. But derivatives are generally done to multiply a thing. I'm talking about locking a thing even. So for this to make sense, you have to take proof of stake, proof of work, delegated proof of stake, all the ways we've ever created a cryptocurrency and throw them the out. Just forget about everything you know about how cryptocurrency has been created up till now. Do not try to put it back together. And I'm going to use Bitcoin as the backing currency for this. I don't care that it's not private. When you hear me explain this, you'll understand why that doesn't matter. There's been something that's been going on in my head ever since I heard Michael Saylor say this. He keeps saying, Bitcoin is the hardest money that humans have ever created. No one can screw with it. No one can change the cap. No one can change the quantity. Additionally, it has adoption. right? So people have gone out and adopted this. And I think you're going to see Bitcoin ETFs. Like Bitcoin is going to be hard Hard, hard money. Again, what I'm about to say is not going to be without things that would need to be fixed. This is just a brain dump, okay? My idea would be that this new ecosystem, this social media, virtual nation, marketplace, exchange of ideas, networking, etc. society would be a place where people could go and set up an account. Maybe there's some form of digital identity so we know that... It doesn't even need to really be bound to anybody's real-world identity. But, like, once you create that identity, like, your reputation begins at that point. And there'd be some way we figure out how to do that where people can only have one account. Don't know how to do that yet. More important is the currency today. Because this could work other ways, too. There would basically be, think of it like a vault. Now, you're going to realize as I do this, the thing about it is, No one directly benefits from this who builds it. The only way they would benefit from it is to be able to use the ecosystem like anybody else. There's no mining. There's no pre-mine. There's no proof of stake. There's nothing like that at all. You'd have this, and I don't even know what to call it because no one's ever built one. This blockchain-ish thing that can only make coins when deposited to in the form of Bitcoin goes in, privacy coin comes out. You're not buying it. You're not buying it. You're not selling it. There is, And when it goes in there, no one takes a piece of the action. And so what you would do is you'd create a fixed cost association. And I have no idea what this would be, so I'm going to pull numbers out of my ass. It might need to be lower or higher. This is just for explanation purposes. For instance, perhaps for every hundred Satoshis you stick in there, one of these new coins that we'll just call Liberty Private comes out. Liberty Private. And the reason we don't do that and just use a Monero or an R or something like it is 
They have their own world. They have their own ecosystem. They have their own market cap. They have their own supply. They have their own method of creation. Like you would, the only reason you would create something new here is you'd need it. So let's make it really simple because we probably wouldn't go this low, but let's make it really simple. One Satoshi equals one of these coins, right? One to one. One Satoshi, one coin. You put in a thousand Satoshis, you get out a thousand of these coins. These coins could pretty much be a copy of a functioning, working, existing privacy coin. And I love R. They're my favorite long-term coin, and it might take so long to build this that any of the problems would go away. But if I was doing it today, I'd look more to something like Monero, a little bit more stability in their wallets, exchanges, all that shit, right? And like I said, when I've talked about this before, Monero uses these ring CTs, that has, I think, 11 units in the ring right now, or 11 options in the ring. It's going over like 100, so it's going to be even better. So it could be Monero, it could be R. It could be some other privacy coin I don't know about. But you basically copy over the technology so that you can base build the existing infrastructure. You shortcut everything. This is this is not about, like, you know, first of all, this is all open source. Anybody can take any coin and make another derivative or version thereof, right? Like, this is done all the time. So... What you're doing is you're shortcutting that dev, but money goes in, money comes out, and you can build this with all this technology we have in a way where anybody, like, it can't be, a, it obviously has to be something that can't be scammed, and it can't be gamed, so it has to have, like, some sort of smart contracts built into it or whatever, where, and maybe, you know, there's going to be some fee on the Bitcoin network in, so maybe what you have is, like, a daily run, maybe it uses Lightning, I don't know, okay, But basically, maybe you put the money in at 9 o'clock in the morning and you get it out at 9 o'clock at night. You get your, your exchanged or newly minted or whatever to keep costs down. And so, like, all the transactions that go in and all the transactions that come out are batched a few times a day. So you have, like, new minted, and this is the other side. Effectively, when somebody says, okay, I don't want to use this, I want my Satoshis back, Instead of minting new coins, you're burning them. That's a term that is used, so I'll use it here. They disintegrate when withdrawn, when, when, when Satoshis come out, and they are minted when Satoshis go in. So the supply flexes with the needs of the marketplace. However, you have an infinitely strong hard cap on quantity. Because how much Bitcoin of the market, like 21 million Bitcoins will ever be, how much of that would ever go in here? A fairly small amount. And I know somebody's going to say, we should use a different currency than Bitcoin. Maybe, but I don't know. Because now you have an incredibly hard-backed coin, token, call it whatever you want to. It has a finite, low-end value of a currency that no matter what the central banks do to it, no matter what happens in society, freaking some of you people think like, Bitcoin's going to crash to the ground and go to zero and it's all going to be this or what. No. Quit dreaming your bullshit. This is the most successful network ever built by human beings. This is a trillion dollar asset. It's not going away. And that, that's, that's solidity. And I want you to think about then Bitcoin like gold or silver. But I want you to think about it for silver for the sake of this discussion because it will make it easier to understand. This new currency would not necessarily always be pegged in its value to the marketplace to Bitcoin. It could decouple in the positive direction, but I don't see it ever decoupling to the negative. Since you can always exchange it for a fixed ratio of Satoshis, 
There's a base. There's a floor. It can't go any lower than Bitcoin lets it. However, there's no reason it can't be a crypto that trades in its own right and has value above the Satoshi lock. I know that sounds crazy, but I want you to think about it. Again, This is a, no one's ever done this that I know of, so it's a totally different way of looking at it. In 1930, if you had a quarter, a United States quarter, it was made out of 90, uh, no, 90% silver, right? 90% silver. And that silver had intrinsic value. The reason they did that at the time was to, yes, put backing in the money, but it also didn't cost a quarter for the silver that went into the quarter. The silver wasn't worth 25 cents. The stamp of the United States government on it saying this is a quarter of a dollar made it worth a quarter of a dollar. The silver was really a partial backing. The reason in 1964 through 1965 we once again demonetized silver similar to what was done in the crime of 1873 was the underlying value of the silver began to exceed the value of the coin itself. And when that happened... We got into Gresham's Law, and people started taking the silver out of circulation and said, I am better off holding this as base metal than spending it as U.S. quarters or dimes or, or what have you, 50 cent pieces, yeah, all of it. So like, we got to do some. Everybody's just holding the coinage. Nobody's spending it. So they could have reduced the size or the silver content, And that actually happened for a very brief period with the Kennedy half dollars. That's where you have the 40%. And the Ike dollar, right, where you have the 40% silver, wasn't really a good because you're going to keep having this problem, right? So what they did is they took the silver out of circulation. They, they got as much of it back as they could. People held on. That's why there's tons of it out there today. It's referred to today as junk silver. And they started minting basically cladded copper. That's, that's worth, you know, one quarter has a half a cent worth of base metal value in it or something like that. And they swapped over to that. And then the quarter maintained its value. Up until that crossover, the quarter was worth more than the base metal. And the quarter had functionality and fungibility in its own economy. So this Liberty, Liberty private token or whatever could have value that exceeds the base metal which is Bitcoin in this particular, for instance, it could trade on other exchanges eventually and what have you. The beauty is, think of any new crypto project and what happens when somebody makes this great new space token or whatever that's going to you know, revolutionize the world or whatever. Let's say that it is. Let's say that it is really great. Let's say people want to use it. Let's say people want to buy it. What's the first problem? How do you get it? Right now, there's a token I want to buy. I'm not going to say what it is. There's only one exchange on the planet that exchanges it. And I can use a VPN and a kind of Fox number to, to make this work with my uh, account verification shit uh, and still get it. But I didn't know it. when I So I tried to sign up for the only exchange that sells it in the world today and said, you're an American citizen, go screw. After I signed up and everything, I'm like, all right, fine, I know what to do, and I'll get to this later. But you can see what I'm saying. So you got this, this interesting token. Somebody wants to buy it. You got to get it listed on an exchange. Think of it kind of like a fixed exchange faucet system. Again, X amount of Satoshis go in, Y amount of this new coin comes out. You always have that underlying base 
No one gets the skim, no one gets the steal, and the problem is going to be that it sounds like a scam. Like, put your Bitcoin in here and you'll get this other thing. It has to be built by, you know, like probably a DAO with people remaining anonymous and all. It has to be out on, like, GitHub and all. It has to be raked over. You have to have every great coder in the space that you can get to rake it over and go, you know, here's a flaw or here's a potential exploit or whatever. You have to have confidence in it. But assuming you can build this and think of it like a sphere, a minting sphere, in, out, 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 you know, in, out, in, out, backwards and forwards. And I guess what you could do to cover the Bitcoin fees is you charge the deposit in excess of what you know they need to get what they want out based on estimated fees, right? with some sort of uh, buffering factor, okay? And then when the Bitcoin comes, and like I said, I think batching it the way that, you know, Strike and everybody else does where they keep the fees very, very low comparison to individual transactions, batching it twice, three, four times a day, I don't know, whatever it is. Again, developers figure this out. If you were to put in and you had like, you know, like you got charged 150 more Satoshis than was necessary to cover the transaction, some sort of aggregator to figure it out on average, and you expected that you were going to get, I don't know, 200 of this new coin, and it, and it ended up where you could get 205 and a half, then when you got your deposit, it would be at least what you expected, and any overage is minted as a new token. And that way it's always locked. I can see a lot of shit that would have to be worked out to make this work. I can't see any reason this wouldn't work. And what you've done is you've created a privacy coin that is a fixed derivative. A fixed derivative of a fixed asset. This seems to have enormous potential. Enormous potential. It would be like... Bitcoin private, except it would really work. It would really work, and it would. This is the beauty. It would not require begging and pleading major exchanges. Please list this token, and it would just sit in the marketplace. And if you wanted it, boom. And there might be some delay. Like if you put money in, maybe it takes you to the next day to get it back out. Again, I think that when I think about how a lot of this tech works. You would have to create some, but I think this all has to be like hard-coded, machine-based decision-making where no one has like some sort of master key where they can go screw the pooch on this. And I don't know how to do that. What I do know is it can be done. You know, sort of like a trustless setup type situation where like these are the things and then like these are the parameters that can be adjusted with future code. Maybe it's the coin on the other side can be adjusted well, like for functionality but not quantity. It has to lock. It has to lock so that there's always this fixed relationship in, out, and in, out on both sides of it. Tear it apart, guys. Tell me how stupid it is. Tell me how crazy it is. Tell me why we don't need it. Or tell me how it can work. Some of you guys out there I know, you guys work in this space. You guys do this. Some of the people that listen to me, you guys build this shit. This one might be worth building. 
It really might be. Because again, you have something with an underlying pinned value that nobody can screw with, and then you create a funnel for it that also nobody can screw with, and then you create an anonymity and privacy, and you create something that can be used in a world where it can always become Bitcoin again. Even though I think most of it, this is the good part, probably never would. With that, hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If it's just totally nuts, you guys let me know. Hey guys, Jack here with episode 98 of Miyagi Mornings. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a skill set that I believe is absolutely criminal that we don't teach in our education system, specifically in our K-12 through education system. We take 13 years of a person's life and we don't teach this thing. And I didn't put the name of it in the title. And the reason I didn't is because when I first say it, some of you that have never learned about it are going to go, oh, this is boring. And it's not. It's actually one of the most critical life skills we can teach a person. Here it goes. Don't turn this off. It's financial modeling. Financial modeling. And I want to give you a little bit of my background to put all of this in context today. And I'm going to go all the way back to the 1980s when I was in high school. I was a good student at things that I found interesting. And fortunately for me, back then we had a lot of flexibility at the high school that I went to, and we could pick different curriculums. Not a few uh, electives here and there, but we could actually take like a career path. And one of those career paths was a business career path. And believing that I would get more out of knowledge of money and business principles than I would about calculating the, 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 the circumference radius or, or volume of a sphere, um, I decided to take that path, and I'm glad that I did. And I was pretty good at it. And so we had uh, three levels of accounting that were high school-level courses. And then my senior year, it was an option, and I took AP accounting, which is basically a, a first-year college course in accounting. I also took uh, a lot of computer courses, keyboarding courses, some outdated archaic shit like 10 key for an adding machine. I mean, that's how old I am and what have you. Business principles, business law, economics, etc. And in all of that, all of that. And I took like an advanced economics course as well. I never really learned financial modeling. I sort of did. I learned like pseudo modeling in the more advanced courses with economics and accounting. But it was all based on here's data sets. Use these data sets to get the answer. It was never modeling. Modeling is, here's an idea for a business, a purchase, an asset, you know, a debt scheme. You know, should I buy or lease a car? Right? And then so you, you come up with your own concept, and then you model out how that works and what that looks like with the ability to swap variables, Not a variable somebody gave you, but a variable that you infer for yourself. You say, well, what if I do this? What if I do that? What if I, on a, on a purchase, what if I put more money down? What if I can increase the trade-in value of my vehicle, et cetera? You know, what is the lifetime cost versus the short-term cost, et cetera? Like all those variables are things that if you're going to model something financially, you need to do yourself. Now, here's the thing. With that educational background and me not really being taught that at all, I just have to, to believe that the average person that's, you know, even with a college degree today has no idea how to do financial modeling. And I'm going to tell you one of the biggest reasons I think that's the case. Because first, let me tell you how long it takes to learn to do this. And I don't mean to learn to do this at like a really high MBA level or something like that. I mean to be able to like 
I'm thinking about starting a side business, or I'm thinking about buying this thing, or I'm thinking about investing in this thing, or I'm thinking about going to college, or I'm thinking about going to trade school, right? And then to model out, what do the real numbers look like? It takes about a week to get good enough with Excel to know all the things that it does. And when I say a week, I mean like self-study for a couple hours a day, so 10 hours of your time to learn. That's if you don't know the square root of F all about Excel. Right, if you're starting from zero, and most people today do kind of sort of know how Excel works. It takes 10 hours of learning how to use Excel, and I'll see if I can find a tutorial on Excel that's fascinating. As, as good as I am with Excel, I learned some things from it that starts out very basic and goes through it's longer than 10 hours. But, man, if you really want to get good at it, it's all there. So it takes that, and it takes a fundamental basic, like, middle school to high school level understanding of mathematics. If you understand, please remember my dear Aunt Sally for your rules, right? If you if you can understand that, if you understand how to do basic, I mean the most fundamentally basic algebraic equations that we teach anybody. And again, we teach this in like 7th and 8th grade. I'm not talking about advanced algebra. I'm not talking about calculus. I'm talking about basic numeric formulas. If you have those two things and the ability and the brain and the thinking process to be able to go out and figure out things like, well, what's the average salary of this career path? How much does the average person get for selling this item in the market that I'm in? What does it cost to buy the things to make the thing that I'm going to sell? All, like That stuff, that basic stuff. If you can do that, you can financially model good enough to serve most people for their whole life. So you're talking about a week of education. We take 13 years from people on our, on our public education system, K through 12, and now they want your kids for pre-K, so they can start programming them, not teaching them earlier. And we don't teach this. We don't teach this. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because one of my good friends is a dude named Matt Powers, a very well-known teacher in the permaculture space, and specifically gears his teaching toward children, knowing that children are the future. Matt started out not as a permaculture teacher, but as a teacher in the public education system. And in that public education system, he was lucky enough to eventually be able to go teach at a charter school, where we take kids a little bit more elevated in their educational path, and teachers have more freedom to actually teach. Matt thought it would be a good idea for these kids to learn financial modeling. So he taught them financial modeling. And then he gave them something to model. Their preferred college education path. What do you, what I want all of you to do, now that we know how to do this, I want you to go home and I want you to think about what do you want to go to college to learn how to do? Then I want you to find out what it's going to cost for you to go to college and learn those things. And I want you to find out like, How much does the average person coming out of college make in their entry-level position in that field? What do they make, you know, kind of five years in and ten years in? And what's your ROI path look like? How long does it take you to go through this career path, fund your education, come out the other side of it, and come out ahead? Now, this is a very logical thing to do. Anybody that's going to invest four years or more of their lives and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in a thing, should probably do this exercise. I think that anybody who's not getting all emotionally attached right now to the idea of everybody should go to college, everybody knows that, even stupid people like me, like anybody that's not there would say that, that if we take college out of that, and I just said, okay, you're going to invest four to six years of your life into a thing, you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're going to do it, at the point of your life where you're physically and emotionally and mentally kind of in your prime years, and you're going to take on debt to do it, but don't worry about it. 
you'd say, well, you're flipping insane. And you'd be right until we put magic words in it, right? Mysticism, but it's a education and it's priceless. No, it's not priceless. We can quantify the cost of an education really, really well. And we can quantify its average ROI, its median ROI, right? So that average median number is a little difference there. We won't get into that today, but we can quantify that about the middle of the road. We can qualify the bottom end of it. We can also quantify what it is if you're in like the top 20% of earners. We can quantify this all well because all the data exists to do it. So we absolutely, educations aren't priceless. They have an ROI. And it's not a priceless ROI. That's a slogan, not a fact. This is why schools don't teach it. My friend Matt, do you know what happened to him when he sent Johnny and Susie and Debbie home to do a logical financial analysis of the dream that they had of college? About half of those students came back and said, this will never, ever, ever pay for itself. And I figured out that I'm going to be in debt to my 40s, and I don't want to do this anymore. For that, Matt was re rewarded with being threatened with being fired from his job. Because, see, Johnny and Susie and Debbie's mommy and daddy were part of the system, too. And they didn't understand this at all. They just wanted Bobby and Susie and Debbie and Tommy and Joey and all to go off to university, just like they did. With no concept that if the numbers don't work, maybe you shouldn't do it. Now, not all these kids decided, I'm not going to go to college. Some of them went, my career choice is really good. Some of them went, my career choice can be good, but not if I like try to go to UCLA. And it's not necessary in this field. When they did further research, they were like, there was no real advantage in this particular space in going into like a really expensive top school. It wasn't really necessary. It didn't really aid the, the path. So reducing the expense side was good. Well, that made mommy mad because mommy was a UCLA alum and she just dreamed that Susie would go too. No understanding of why, right? Like, The reason this happens, and it's in the end of my show notes here, is because institutions are like people. They defend themselves from extinction. They defend themselves from attack. They seek to propagate themselves. They seek to continue. Well, I don't think we would end up with no schools if everybody learned financial uh, modeling in school. But we learn up, we'd end up with a lot less people going into the system of higher education we call university and college. A lot less. Because if you did the math, like half the people that do that right now would not. Then this would require something like, oh, I don't know, a free market that would come in and compete for the rest of these students' education, creating multiple different paths. But this is also something people don't understand. If you, if you model everything out financially, and you should... Well, then you'd figure out that the K-12 system is dependent on the university system to sustain its necessity in compulsory education, meaning everybody everywhere must go and it all must be done with socialism so that everybody gets the same education, even though we know that's a lie because there's no doubt that different school districts have different levels of quality, etc. But we need this belief that everybody needs to go through this funnel and end up in the same place. And funnel's narrow, but we want a magic funnel with straight sides, right? So that every child, every Johnny and Susie and Debbie and Bebby, Betty goes to, to college. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea because some people are too stupid to go to college. It's not a good idea because some people are too smart to go to college. But it's not a good idea because people have dreams sometimes that are independent from college. So why would you have an institution teach people a skill that would mean that many of the people that learn the skill would figure out, I don't need you. 
Many of the people would figure out, I do need you, and many of the people would also figure out, I want you, but you would lose a segment. They can't lose any of them. They built the whole system on perpetual growth, and this is the next reason that we don't teach financial modeling. You think that your government wants a group of citizens that can see through their bullshit when they start telling you about all these magical programs that are free like unicorns and rainbows, and they're going to just come down out of the sky and give you free shit? No, because anybody that can do basic financial modeling, and I, I, I can only determine now, listening to some of these people that come out of college with degrees in economics, for God's sakes, that even somebody that goes to like a top university with a degree in economics is shitty at financial modeling. They can't do the basic financial modeling you can teach yourself in about 10 days. And they don't want people to be able to do this. Because then you would make better spending decisions, better investing decisions, better savings decisions, right? Better decisions about your career path. Better and you would be more inclined to drop out of the workforce and start a business if you knew how to do this. Because people are like, well, businesses are risky. If you're stupid, they're, they're risky. You know what I've done with every business I've ever considered starting? A financial model. In fact, several models with several variables built into them so I could swap things around and say, does this make sense? And if, the, if it makes sense, the risk of a business is probably less than the risk of you losing your job because, yeah, we're downsizing and we're tired of you. Uh, we're going to get rid of you because you're too close to like full retirement and we want to get rid of you before you cost us more money. I know a lot of people that that shit happened to. You know who's going to fire me? No one. You know why? I work for me. And you know what? I'm not going to fire myself until I don't want to work anymore and I have enough money not to. That's security. They don't want you to have security. They don't want to have, you have critical thinking. You, they don't want like to get up there and give a speech and talk about, we're going to do it all. It's free for everybody and for you to be able to go, you know, let's just plug that shit in a spreadsheet. I don't work. I don't work, asshole. They don't want that. They don't want to tell you, oh, we're going to spend $65 million to build this new high school and have you be able to plug shit in and do a takeoff like you're the construction company building it and going, that doesn't make any sense. Who's, whose ass are you, are, are you stuffing with dollars with kickbacks when you build this school? They don't want any of that. And they're not going to teach you and they're not going to teach your kids. So you need to learn and you need to teach kids. You should start teaching basic financial modeling. I think most children are capable of learning the skills and the why And if you do it right, developing the interest at somewhere between 12 and 16 years of age. And by the time your kid is 18 years old, if you're hearing this today, if you, your kid's already 18 and you never heard this before, but if you have a kid right now that's like 10, 11, 12, and they make it to 18 without knowing how to do this, you've let them down. You've let them down. Why wouldn't you teach your kids how to do this? And I'll tell you the number one reason that most adults won't teach their kids this. Back to college. Everybody wants, everybody feels, everybody thinks that my kid needs to go to college. You're afraid of the answer to the question, so you don't want them to know it. That's not how good parent treats their kids. That's not how good parent treats their kids. Now, the people in the education system, they know full well what they're doing. And I'll just say, they're not letting your kids down. They're abusing your children. That's why my, my grandkids will never see the inside of a public school, I, sorry, government school ever again for the rest of their lives because they're going to learn these skills and other skills. Teach yourself basic financial modeling. And if you're thinking, man, I, I know some young people need to learn this, learn it and teach them. If you can fog a mirror, you're not too old, 
to learn this skill and make it part of your life. Take care, guys. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Well, hey there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 99, right? So uh, we got one more before Jack disappears for a few weeks on vacation. Uh, I will be here next week some, but I will not be doing Miyagi Mornings because it would be like three episodes, and I just... I, I'm not doing Miyagi mornings in any week where there can't be five. We're staying with even, you know, zero and fives at the end of each week. I'm sorry. That's just me. Uh, anyway, today's episode sort of adds on to yesterday's. I guess maybe yesterday's I made, like, if you were taking a course, like a prerequisite to, for thinking, not necessarily doing exactly what I said yesterday with financial modeling for part of this question, because this person was sneaky, but they did it well. So they actually asked three questions in one on the thread at MeWe. And if you want to get your stuff on Miyagi Mornings, I'm telling you, follow me on MeWe, go to the top of my profile, see a sticky post there and post there. I've probably answered half of what's been posted, and I'm working with the newest ones first, and if there's nothing there that I'm going back through. So if you get on board, you're likely to get your question on the air. Anyway, so the question today was automation for efficiency, background how to find better ways to do what we've always done and think outside the box. How Also, how does one that is suddenly surprised uh, with a manager that questions everything you do and all you have the answer is, that's what they train me to do. Third, how do you determine if you're spending too much time not really productive or important? Thanks. That's all over the map. What I'm going to throw out of that, because I have to throw something out of that, is how to deal with your manager at work when the only response you have with, like, why are you doing it this way is because you were trained to do it. That's your manager's problem. That's not your problem. There's my short answer on that. Like, if your manager doesn't like the way you do a thing, then since they're your manager, they should tell you, how to do a thing the way they like it done. Or you can go try to figure it out using some of what I'm going to give you today to do. But you're asking me mostly, it seems like, about automation on your homestead and how to determine if the things you're doing on your homestead should be done and how to maybe think about them a little differently to do them better. Three questions. You asked four. I'll give you three. You're lucky, man. Anyway, so let's start out with automation. I am not an automation expert. I wish I was. I would love to be good with Adrenos and stuff like that, Raspberry Pi sitting back here at my computer running my whole farm off it. Maybe someday. I don't know. I We all have limited time, and we have different things that we're really good at. I'm a technical person, but I'm not that type of technical person. I'm a high-level tech person. I can come up with interesting shit to do with technology that I understand, but implementation is something I've always hired out because it's time-consuming. It's like graphic design. I can do basic graphic design, but I can pay someone to do a better job than I can, get it done faster, and use my time on other things. That's part of the other side of this question. If you're If you're doing something that's incredibly time-consuming and it's not going to be something that you will really benefit long-term from developing the skill, you may want to hire that out. That's one way to think about it. But with automation, I have three things, and I have two, two of them here as props to show you. So if you're listening to the audio version, you can look up the episode. And if you're listening to the audio version, every audio recap of a week has links in it in the, the, the show notes to all of the individual videos. Uh, so number one in the most useful form of automation that I use on my farm on a daily basis right now is dead simple. Even I can work it. It's these little mechanical timers from Sentry. They have little pins. You push them down. Each pin down represents 15 minutes. Pin is down, 15 minutes on. Pin is up, 15 minutes off. 
It's that simple. And anything you can come up with in intervals, you can do with that. If you just want 12 on, 12 off for lights, push 12 hours down, set the time right here with that little arrow, boom, it works. It's not like the old ones that have all the little pegs and shit. Those things, the first time I tried to use one, I literally snapped out like a raging, raving boomer and hurled it over my fence. It's back there with hose nozzles and, and, and shitty garden trowels, right? That's my, my raving boomer launch pad. So I, I was just, ugh, I hate timers. I found these, and this is great. It's the most simple form of automation that there is, on and off. And anything that you need to turn on and off, As long as it is within the tolerance of 15 minutes of runtime, this will do it. If you want something to come on 15 minutes a day, twice a day, this will do it. I use this for my plant lights in my indoor systems. I use this for the lights on my fish tanks. Not really, you know, in conjunction with what you're asking, but like that's another example. I use this for ebb and flow in my aquaponics and, and hydroponics systems, and it works fantastically. The systems that I've come up with to use this with aquaponics, I've never seen anybody use it in aquaponics. It is foolproof. It eliminates bell siphons. Uh, you can check out my other videos on that. But this is the simplest form of automation that I've come up with. They're eight bucks a piece. You get a two-pack for $16. There's a link in the video notes. The other one, it's also kind of an on-off timer. These are mechanical timers for hoses. And the way they work, you have anywhere between... I think you can do like even five minutes. It's just they're marked at 15-minute increments. You turn the knob, and you have the water on, and the water runs through the timer, and the timer tick, 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 and when it gets to off, it shuts off. There's a force on if you just want to run it so you can leave it on a hose you use regularly. Um, these have saved my butt. I forget shit. I have OCD, right? I have OCD, but I also have ADHD, right? I I I... I, I get really excited about something I do something and I walk away from it and like two hours later my wife's like is water running somewhere and I'm like son of a bitch and you go out there and there's a flood and the ducks are making mud holes when I'm filling up a pond I use one of these when I am even when I'm when I want the pond to overflow I don't want it to overflow for two hours so if I want to overflow a pond into an irrigation system right and these are smaller ponds I'll throw one of these in there and I'll set it for, let's say, 30 minutes, and I'll know what my flow rate is, about how much water needs to get to where overflow is, and then I know how much I'm going to overflow. Really, really simple, on-off. Again, simplest form of automation there is to me is just an on-off. It's like binary code, ones and zeros. That, and then the last one is float valves. And so I have a link in the video notes here for you guys, and I'm talking about float valves like for a stock tank, but there's different types of float valves. Those have been incredibly useful for me. I recently put in a new duck bath, right? And that duck bath is up on what we call Duck Mountain, and it overflows into one of my ponds, and it waters some trees and stuff like that. And if I put the hose in it, turn it on, and forget about it, which I do, not only does it overflow, but it's going to erode Duck Mountain and make a big mess, and it's not, not good. By just taking a simple float valve, putting in there, plumbing that to my main water line, when I drain it off to do whatever I, I want it to do and when I want it to refill, I just turn it on. Once it gets up to where it shuts the float valve off, the water stops, levels right where I want it. Sooner or later, I'll come back around, turn that valve off to release the pressure. When I do that, I always put, if I ever put like a timer, uh, float valve, anything in a system like that, I always put a splitter on the hose bib itself so that you have another side that you can use without it. And whenever I'm doing that, and when I do come back around and go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to turn that off, I shut that off, 
and I open the other side of the splitter and take the pressure off that line since it's not a continuous operation going on. Then when I drain it, I can let it stay dry. I can refill it. It just works perfectly that way. And it's it's really, really a great thing. And then all my other systems, I just plumb them into the pressure with the well, and they're never low. I don't have to worry about filling them up. So those are my main forms of automation. I wish I had more high-tech for you, but if you just take those three types of automation, float valves, mechanical timers for irrigation, and mechanical timers for time with electricity, there's a lot of function stacking you can do in there. So this is going to transition over to the other part. Like, How do you figure out what you should be doing or better ways to do a thing? This is why I gave you the groundwork yesterday with should you be doing it. What's your ROI? What's your ROI? That's what, that's what you have to look at. And with homesteading, I do think it's important that we also include like recreation, enjoyment, beauty. And you have to quantify those things for yourself. So if you're doing something that takes quite a bit of your time, and the, the output, the yield, is not that high, but it gives you a lot of pleasure, and it's not interfering with things that do have higher ROIs, that's okay. That's okay. But if you're managing a duck flock and you're doing a larger flock than you need, okay, you got more ducks than you need for you or chickens for you, and the reason you're doing that is to sell, let's say, eggs to try to pay for your flock, it takes more money and more time to take care of more birds. It doesn't take a lot more time to take care of them because pretty much you put them away, you let them out, you feed them, you water them, you give them more food, you give them more water. It doesn't really add that much up. But collecting eggs, packaging eggs, selling eggs, that all takes time. And then you're putting more feed into the mix. So I would run a calculation. It's exactly what we've done. How many ducks do you need to have enough surplus that you can sell consistently so you're not wasting your time and money to pay for the other birds. And if the numbers don't work out, we don't do it. We don't do it. And I think that's how we need to look at everything. Like, if you're building, if you're making compost, there are people I see, they put hours and hours a week into compost making, turning compost and stuff like that. If you enjoy it, if and if you're making a shitload of compost and you're using it or selling it, right on, brother. Me? I don't want to do that. Check out my video called Lazy Man Makes Works One Day a Year Making Compost. That's the way I do it because there's no ROI in it for me. With all the gardening I do, I need, what, a yard, two yards of compost a year? And if I need bulk, I'm not going to be able to make bulk anyway. So I could maybe increase my production by 20%. Doesn't do me any good, but I would increase my workload like 100% to do that. Or, or 200 or 300%, honestly, if I'm doing, like, turn every four days and crap. I'm not doing that, right? Turning compost is bad, in, in the words of Nick Ferguson. If, if I was running a compost sales system using chickens to make really super high-quality compost, and that was my main form of income, we can look at that differently. But when it comes to, like, how much compost do I need to make, a yard or two a year is plenty. It's plenty. I just basically need top dressing for my beds. So if I can do that with almost no work, then that's how I'm going to do that. And I think you have to look at everything that way. If you're putting hours and hours and hours into your gardening, you either need to be getting a huge yield or a lot of enjoyment. And I think that with homesteading, the danger is we convince ourselves that we need certain things, and then we become married to having to do them. I mean, the reality is here, unless something breaks out there, I don't do 
maybe 30 minutes of work a day that's maintaining and caring for. I guess my largest labor input, which probably is about 30 minutes in of its own, is filling up duck water pans every day. So I fill, I fill up 13 of them. There are 21-gallon uh, concrete mixing trays. But when I do that, I am fertilizing and watering tree systems at the same time. So I'm taking something that needs to be done anyway. The ducks need water, right? And the ducks do pay for themselves, plus... Right now, we're freezing eggs in surplus of what we can sell right now because we're in a super high season. Uh, we've just filled up. All, we're about to go on vacation, so we just called our customers, and we wiped our inventory to zero, and we're like, we're not going to have eggs for the next two, three weeks. So we got rid of everything, and as they come in now, we got my granddaughter in there cracking them and freezing them for our own use. So we're putting up our stock. Then we'll leave. We'll have a caretaker here for about two weeks while we're gone, and that'll bring our stock back up to sell our customers. That's all methodically thought out without it being complicated. But without the ducks paying for themselves, we wouldn't be doing any of that. So since they do pay for themselves, it does make sense to make sure that they're well cared for with water. The number of pans I fill is more than they need. But, but the reason I do it, is it works in a pattern system that moves through my whole farm. So I get up in the morning, I go let the birds out, I come in, I have a cup of coffee, I do a little bit of uh, pre-show work, I get my item of the day out, what have you. Then I go back out, dump all the pans, move them to the new location, fill them back up while I have coffee and talk to the ducks. It's enjoyable, I have the time, it makes sense. If I was not getting two to three things, fertility, watering, and the birds being taken care out of that, that would be really expensive for me to spend a half hour doing that. Because I enjoy it, we'll add that as a fourth thing, and because it gives me time to think. So while I'm doing that, I'm out there working on the other side of your problem here. How can I do this better? So it's like I, basically here's a little, little tip, not an automation tip, but it's a tip. I went down to Tractor Supply. They sell all their hardware by the pound, and I found the biggest like lug nuts that they had, and they were like six to the pound, right? So they're a little, like about 0.2 pounds each. And I took one of those in every hose that I use for filling the ducks up. I wired one of those to the end of the hose so there's weight there, so I can just throw it in there, and I don't have to worry about coiling it or anything, right? And then so it's going to take about a minute and a half per pan to fill. So I throw it in there, I have the water running, and I walk the area that I'm in, And I think, like, what could I plant here? Where's this problem? So I'm looking at plants for diseases, pruning, anything that needs to be done. And while that's happening, I'll go in and grab my pruners or my sawzall or whatever. I'll take this limb off here, throw that in the fire pit. And I'll, since I move the pans every day, that observation, interaction, and feedback is moving every day with me. So I function stacked the behavior of the individual myself and its interaction with the livestock with the total interaction with the establishment. That's permaculture thinking. And you can apply that anywhere, including back to your boss thing. Like, how can you make the process more efficient? Here's my little tip that I gave somebody in my family who didn't do it. They were going into a new job. They were doing basically like coding and billing and stuff like that. I'm like, build a spreadsheet. I'll help you if you need me to. Monitor your own productivity. While you're doing it, lean out the spreadsheet to where you get it to where it really tells you how good you're doing because They had QC at this place, but not at a really sophisticated level. They're just basically like raw number of, of inputs, like accuracy and, and total billing and all that. Like figure this all out. Run this for 90 days on yourself, and that will make you judge yourself every day. At the end of that 90-day period, your performance should look really better than it did when it started out. 
take that data, go to your boss and say, hey, I'd like a raise and here's why. The other thing that would have done, if this person would have done that, is it would have moved them right up toward being promoted into management because who the hell does that? The answer is nobody. You know who, who does stuff like that? Me. That's what I did my whole life. That's why I had people working for me that were in their 50s when I was in my early 20s because of things like that. So I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you how to think about what to do. And that's my advice. So that was a lot in one, 16 minutes long. Woo. We will be taking a break, but we'll be back one more time before that break. Miyagi Mornings episode 100 coming to you tomorrow. Hey guys and gals, Jack Spierko here with episode 100, 100 of Miyagi Mornings. It's also kind of a uh, special episode in that you will not hear from me again on Miyagi Mornings anyway until all the way till the 17th of May. It's the last episode for a while. I'm going on vacation starting next week. I'm not actually leaving this weekend or Monday or anything like that. I won't be leaving till later in the week, but I'm not going to be doing Miyagi Mornings next week. Something has to give next week so that I can have enough like uh, rewinds and stuff like that on the podcast for people. Again, people that are watching me on YouTube and have never been to my website, my YouTube channel is not my podcast. I don't podcast on YouTube. I podcast as a podcaster. I'm on Stitcher and iTunes and all that stuff. So you might want to check out my website link in the notes below uh, if you haven't done so and maybe subscribe to my podcast because if you like this, you'll really like the podcast. Anyway, um, Today's episode, I thought it would be fitting to do something a little bit deeper, a little bit more meaningful for episode 100, and for sort of like a temp, not a goodbye, but a see you later episode, right? I'm going to be gone for a few weeks and recharging my batteries. And I'm going to be, I was thinking about as I walked around today, checking out the damage to my property. We just recently had a pretty nasty hailstorm, and what I think was probably like an F-Zero spin-up brief tornado, honestly. Like, it didn't really damage things badly, but it screwed up my plans. It set me back. Um... Punched a bunch of holes in the roof of my uh, my greenhouse, which is getting replaced anyway, so it's not that big a deal. Uh, fortunately, the cars were in in the shop and protected. Um, it blew hail the size of like a little bit smaller, like I'd say about ping pong, maybe a little smaller than ping pong balls, up into my back door, which is only impressive because there's a 20-foot roof there. So it blew those hail stones 20 feet horizontally. Punched holes in my outdoor speakers. This is a pretty interesting thing, but... The big thing is it set me back a lot on my planting and stuff like that. You know what, guys? That's the real world. That's what we're talking about today. What is the real world? Like, Let's start off with what the real world isn't. The real world is not on your television screen at all, even a little bit. Like, Even the documentaries that you watch that are actually useful and educational are not the real world. They're created in some idealistic manner with an agenda to lead you to some conclusion rather than just purely it is what it is. The news was never just the news. The never, news was never just the facts. The news has been a propaganda machine since it was first created, since the first TVs went into the first homes, the first radios, you know, after Marconi invented the radio and it, it became a thing and the infrastructure was built. All the news has always been propaganda. There's no doubt that it's worse now, but it's always been propaganda. And hence, since it's propaganda and since it has an agenda, it cannot, will not, and will never be the real world. The real world is not even, when you look at your friend's, Your real friends, IRL friends, in real life friends on social media, most of the time, most of the time, I'm going to give an exception to this community here in a second, most of the time, that's not the real world either. Even if you're seeing their actual backyard, even if you're seeing their actual house, and they're wearing their actual clothes, and they're doing their heart hands on, on uh, Instagram for Instagram models or whatever, these are all carefully constructed views into the lives of individuals so that they control what other people see. That's why people love filters, so they can make themselves look a little younger, a little thinner, a little prettier, whatever. 
very seldom do you get complete and total reality from people. I, I know some people really like to take selfies all the time and then say they don't want attention. Right, and then they act, they 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 feign like indignation because like if it's a girl, like there's guys contacting me all the time. Well, maybe if you didn't post four or five selfies a day, right, they wouldn't think that you were, uh, you know. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it is, right. And and so there's a there's a disconnect there from reality for a lot of people. The exception has been many of the members of this community, and it's an interesting phenomenon. And I think it's why we do these workshops here. We'll have sixty, seventy, eighty people here, you know, for a week. Uh, on my property, camping in, in my backyard and hanging out in my garage, which we turn into basically a great big nightclub, you know. And people that are workaday people that go to work every day, that live really, you know, their neighbors would think really normal lives. They don't go out and party. They don't go out to bars. They're up till 3 o'clock in the morning, sometimes later. You know why? They don't want it to end. Because they're surrounded by people who do not have their shields up, that are not pretending to be something that they're not. And that's why I think that actually when we look at things like our MeWe groups and stuff like that, we actually do see at least a glimpse of reality in the lives of people. It doesn't seem as filtered as it does everywhere else. And I don't mean MeWe as a thing. I mean the community here that are willing to let their shields down and stop pretending to be something that they're not. That's part of the real world. But it is so much deeper than that. The real world is first admitting your fragility, and your mortality. If you do that, you're not afraid of the COVIDs. See, people think when you admit your fragility, and I mean not the way that the woke crowd uses that term. I mean the fact that you, as a being, are relatively fragile. That storm we had, if you'd been standing out there, if I'd been standing out there, and you had 70, 80 mile an hour winds gusting through with, with hailstones that big, and you get hit in the bean with that, hey, if it took out Goliath, right, We are fragile beings. You could be driving to work tomorrow, get hit by a gravel truck. I've used that analogy forever because have you seen one? Have you seen one of those 10-ton gravel trucks rolling down the road? Those things don't even have a suspension. They're like just attached to their freaking axles. You get hit with that, you're dead. Millions of people die every day. Death is one thing that we're assured of. We will all die. None of us are getting out of life alive. And it's an acceptance of that. And you stop being afraid of things like the COVIDs. Right? Like, well, you could get sick and die. I could get sick and die tomorrow. I could get cancer. That's why when all this shit started, I stayed in the real world. I didn't go to fantasy land. I was posting pictures of my grandkids and I fishing and listening to classic rock music right at the beginning of when everybody was freaking out, when people were disowning their dogs because the TV said your dog could give you COVID. And they're like, you're letting your grandchildren come out? I'm like, what am I going to do? Hide from my grandchildren? Well, you could get COVID. I could get liver cancer. I could get pancreatic cancer tomorrow. I could get a diagnosis. I could have a brain tumor. I could have an aneurysm. I could have a heart attack. I could have a congenital heart defect that was never spotted. And one day I could see him in perfect health and in two seconds be dead. It happened to a good friend of mine and it happened to a very famous actor. Remember John Ritter? He died on a set of a movie that he was making. They said if he had been standing in an ER with the greatest heart surgeon available on planet Earth standing next to him when it happened, he still would have died. He bled out that fast. It was a congenital defect. It just happened. I'm not talking about being stupid and walking face long into dangerous situations as an idiot. I'm just saying when you come to grips with the fact that you are a fragile mortal being, you stop fearing death because you realize it's inevitable. And once you do that, then you can actually live in the real world. And until you do, I don't think you can. Because then you're going to always make things worse 
than they really are. See, people think that if you do this, if you, if you give in to this reality, that therefore you become more vulnerable. And because you're more, more vulnerable, you live in more fear. You start seeing all the ways that you could die. No, actually what happens is you stop bothering to look at the ways you could die. Because it doesn't matter how you die. It just matters that you're gonna. So you still get the hell out of a way when a truck comes barreling down the road and is clearly out of control. You still don't do stupid shit like, I don't know, uh, play with bare electrical wires while you stand and water up to your knees. Unless you're stupid. Some people do. But most people that come to this conclusion, this reality check, they, 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 then they don't do stupid things like that because they recognize, well, yeah, I could die any day, any way, but that's a dumb thing to do. So you stop hiding in your closet surrounded by a toilet paper fort because, oh, my God, the TV said you're going to get the COVIDs and die. You're like, you know, if something, if something is a disease that over 99% of people survive, that's not going to be the thing that I worry about today. There's other ways I could get taken out. And then the beauty opens. That's the other side, though. It's not all bad. Like, see, preppers are, are, are living in the real world because we accept that, like, oh, power could go out. Uh, the grid could go down. Uh, there could be a trucker strike. There could be major supply shortages, and that shit is happening right now, by the way. And it will only get worse before it gets better. Um, we accept all these terrible things could happen. Well, that's reality. So then you put things in place to deal with them, and then you can live in the real world. Then you can actually live a happy, productive life. That's what happens when you accept this vulnerability, and then you see what's real. What's real, what's the real world, is when I go outside and my cat greets me because we formed a bond. That's the real world. When I open the door to the duck house in the morning and they come out excited to greet the day, that's the real world. A week and a half from now when I'm standing on the beach up to, up to my waist in beautiful turquoise water, And there's nothing but a tiny, thin line connecting me to a redfish or a snook or a shark that's peeling my drag off. And I watch that fish walk on top of the water. And that's only for me, and it only can be for me. Even if I hired a film crew to film me doing it, you could never experience it the way I'm experiencing it in that moment. Me versus that fish for that time. That's the real world. When you get up in the morning and it's still dark out, And something inside you speaks. And you go make that cup of coffee. And it breaks you out of your slumber. And it's still dark out. And you could sleep another hour, but you don't. Because you realize something amazing is about to happen. You go somewhere, maybe outside your back door. Maybe down the street. Maybe to a special place. And you watch the sun rise. That's the real world. When you do the same thing on an evening. And the sun hits the horizon. And that last little bit of it, it just disappears and swallows it up and it goes away but you know it'll be back tomorrow that's the real world when your child takes the first step that's the real world when your child holds your hand when you die as an old man if you're fortunate to get to live to be an old man or an old woman and they tell you it's going to be okay you can go that's the real world and what these scum have done has is taken that from people people with their parents passing away not able to be at their bedside because, oh, somebody can get COVID. Somebody's dying. And a lot of times not of COVID. It's just, you know, when we get old, we die. It's absolutely insane that you would worry about the health of a person who's dying, who's going to be dead tomorrow. Somebody should have been there with them. That's the real world. Everything that these people are doing is designed to hide the real world.
Because the real world is harsh, but it's also beautiful. And the real world is worth everything to those that see it. And people that see the real world are ungovernable and they are uncontrollable. You cannot control a person once they see the real world for what it is. You can't. Because that person will always put value in liberty, freedom, and beauty above safety. The real world isn't safe. It never was. It never will be. Some of you young people that are terrified of a freaking cold need to grow the hell up already. I know you're still young, but grow up a little bit. My generation, we grew up that sometimes a bell would go off and we would all hide under our desks because it was a, it was a drill for a nuclear war. We lived for 30, 40 years with the specter of eliminate, immediate, instant death for almost every living human being on the planet could come. You know what? We still went outside and played. Why not? If it could all end tomorrow, why not? That's the real world. There was a time in history where over centuries, smallpox killed 50 million people at least. And that was actually a disease that killed and disfigured and really destroyed people's lives. And it didn't just take people that were at the end of their life expectancy anyway. And I know some healthy people have died now. They're the exceptions, and we're not even looking into that. That would be the real world. Doing a blood panel on every single healthy person under 40 that didn't have comorbidities and determining what nutrients they were deficient in, real world. Pretending that you need to be afraid because that happened to this one person one place over here, fake world. The real world is everything that is beautiful and everything that is deadly. The real world is everything that is without being shaped and sculpted by somebody else for you to see. This is something that's difficult to understand until you do, and that it is the most simple thing that you will ever do in your life. When you understand that, like I talked about with that sunrise, no one can do it for you. When you understand what that actually means, you can finally live in the real world all the time. You will sense bullshit from a mile away, like Spidey sense from the comic books. Like it, it has nothing on the bullshit detector a person develops once they live in the real world. Then and only then can you do that. When I get up in the morning and I go out there and I look at that, if you were standing right next to me, the experience is different. It's not the same. We're in the same place. Temperature's the same. We're looking at pretty much the same angle. You know, if the hell with social distancing, we're a foot apart. We're looking at the same place, same time, same thing, maybe drinking the same cup of coffee. We can wear the same clothes. It won't be the same. It won't be the same with optics, but more importantly, it won't be the same in our spirits. We'll see it differently, and we'll feel it differently. I only have one eye. Obviously, I'm going to see it different than you do. That's superficial. Only I can take in that moment for me, and only you can take in that moment for you. And... What has been done to make people behave in an unnatural and fearful and controllable state is to take away as many of those moments in the lives of people as possible. To convince people that working 40 hours a week is the real world. Why 40? Why not 45? Why not 35? Why not 38? Why not 39 hours and 51 minutes? Why 40? Why eight hours a day, five days a week? Because that's what a union wanted and, and Henry, Henry Ford thought was a good idea too for happy workers. But why 40 hours a week? Like, if you work 40 hours a week, okay, you have a full-time job. You're a responsible adult. 
But if I work 20 hours a week, I'm, I'm slacking off. That's how people think today. doesn't matter that I get more done or have a better life or build more value in the lives of others in that 20 hours. No, I should be working 40 hours. We actually think this way. How can that possibly be the real world? We think the real world is like the clothing you wear, like some brand or something like that, you know. It's not the real world. The real world is the perception that you as a being have in your heart, your mind, and your spirit. And if you're a Christian, you do that through the lens of the Christian God. If you're a deist like me, you do that through not knowing, but knowing there's something else. If you're an atheist, you can do the same thing from natural systems. It, we don't know who's right. None of us know who's right in that. That's also the real world. The real world isn't I'm right and everybody else is wrong, especially with giant questions like the nature or existence of God. Until we can accept that no matter how much we believe a thing, we don't know a thing. And if we know a thing, we can't have faith. We have knowledge. We can't live in the real world. When we accept our complete helplessness and at the same time see our enormous power, then we live in the real world. And only then do we live in the real world. This is why tribal societies throughout the world have always done the same thing with their young men. They send them into the wilderness for a time to be alone, to contemplate, to feel that they can't do a thing, then to actually do a thing, and then to come back and be transformed and be different. If that's not a thing, if that's not real, then how did societies thousands and thousands of miles apart that never communicated with each other come up with basically the same system? That's the real world. When individuals who are not connected left to themselves in their own groups, end up with the same conclusion, you're probably on the right track. There's something greater and grander than us, and we are tiny, insignificant specks in the real world. And we are also, at the same time as a paradox, incredibly powerful beings, and one little thing that you do can have the butterfly effect and save a life. Not today or tomorrow, but seven generations from now. You will never know. You have passed on. You have gone to whatever is next. And something that you set in motion right now today could set a whole chain of events in motion that makes one person reach out at just the right time to save another person. How powerful is that? And yet, we can be wiped out in less time than it takes to blink. And it happens to thousands and millions of people every month. Time's up. It's over. It's the real world. And that makes the dash that is you. That when you die and they put that birth year and that death year and they put that little hyphen, that little dash in between those years somewhere, and that dash is you, that makes that dash incredibly Precious, And if you understood that, you would not let yourself be controlled by this false fear that they have worked to place in you since the day you were born. You'd understand your own power, and frankly, bluntly, and some of you can't handle this word, you need to hear it, you would say, fuck that. Fuck that. I am a powerful, powerful being, and at the same time, I am insignificant. It is up to me which one of those two beings I choose to be 
on a daily basis. I can accept the fragility. I can accept the weakness. I can accept the mortality. I can accept it all. But I can act on the side that is powerful. Or I can let them tie into me and destroy that powerful being's motives. Destroy the knowledge of that powerful being. And then there's nothing left but quivering fear. You can put a lot of false bravado on. You can go to the gym. You can get all pumped up. Right? You say, I'm not afraid. You're terrified. You're terrified of life. So many of you, you're terrified to live. You're not afraid to die. You're afraid to live. Bullshit. Bullshit. Don't let them take that from you. You have kids? They're taking it from your children right now, right under your nose. Their children will grow up and be more fearful than you are if you let this happen to them. And if you set the example of being fearful, you want the real world? Open your door. Walk out back. Feel the wind on your neck. When somebody's scared, take their hand. When somebody's in need, give to them. Don't give to a charity. You, there's plenty of people that need right around you. Go give to them. Real world. Accept that you are a limited being. And at the same time, embrace the fact that you are an unlimited one. Until sometime next month, Jack signing off. Take care. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.